Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 4 as we begin our series, or continue our series in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, if you're using a pew Bible in the racks there in the pews, it'll be on page 740. And we've been looking at this now for three weeks, and it is an historical narrative. And so in the Bible, I love historical narratives. They're the way they're written, the details that are included, the details are left out are all meant to drive to a burning focus. And so chapter 4, where we come today, is actually part of the climax of the first half of the book of Daniel. And so to really understand the thrust of chapter 4, we need to kind of go back and rehearse what we've learned in chapters 1, 2, and 3. As a reminder, this book is written to the Jews who are in exile. They're in exile because they were refusing to do the very thing we just sang about, to worship the one and only true God. Now, they they would do their sacrifices, but they would do their sacrifices while also worshiping the gods of the lands. They did not worship only God. In fact, when Joshua went in and conquered the land, he told them, put away your gods and worship Yahweh alone. And they responded, not once, not twice, but three times, you know we'll worship Yahweh. And you already see this plan, this this problem put into motion. So very quickly after Joshua and the leaders pass away, we get to the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But God was patient. They said it's because we don't have a king. God gave them a king of their choosing. It was King Saul. Things didn't change. King David came on the throne, a man after God's own heart. And then we see in David also a man who did things his own way. Prophet after prophet comes. Eventually, God removes him. He sends King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as we learned in chapter 1, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar. God gave the Israelite king into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And so here are the Jews, they're living in Babylon, and Psalm 137 pictures their perspective while they're in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Had they rebelled one too many times? Would God abandon them forever? Now, what's interesting, you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses already forewarned them in the book of Deuteronomy that this was coming. He said, not if you rebel against the Lord and God sends you into other lands. He said, but when? When you rebel against the Lord and he sends other nations to come in and take you away and scatter you throughout their lands... When you remember the Lord and you cry unto him and you turn your face back to him and away from your sins, then God will hear your prayers and he will restore you. So this little book of Daniel comes to the Jews in exile, feeling hopeless, feeling that all hope is lost, feeling that this pagan king has control of their lives and over the world. And it comes to them and says, there's hope. There's hope of restoration, the fact that God is sovereign over all nations, not just Israel. God is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar, and God gave you into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This was not Nebuchadnezzar's doing, Daniel 1, 2 says. Well, in Daniel 1, we're also introduced to two main characters of the book, at least the first few, few sections here, first four chapters. There's a tendency to think that the book is all about Daniel, or all about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or They're Hebrew names, which most people don't remember. Do you guys remember them? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those names give glory to Israel's God. But very quickly, we come on the scene in chapter 2, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar gives them names that reflect and, and glorify his God. But the two main characters are actually God and Nebuchadnezzar. Who is really king? Who is really the most glorious one? And Daniel and his three friends are actually secondary characters in these first four chapters. 
they are a faithful remnant of Jews who are devoted to worshiping God alone even while living in a very wicked and pagan land. In fact, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar trying to brainwash them, trying to instill in them his humanistic philosophies and feed them with his food from this table, but they refused and they were seen to be healthier and wiser than all the other young men. We saw in chapter 1 how Nebuchadnezzar thought his victory was due to his own might. And how did he demonstrate that? He plundered the temple of God. He took the vessels from the temple of God. He brought them and put them in the temples of his gods. Making a statement, my God beat your God. We get to chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he makes a decree, as Nebuchadnezzar likes to do. All my magicians, all my sorcerers, all my wise men, I want you to come. I don't want you to give me the interpretation. I want you to tell me the dream as well. And they look at him and say, King, there's no man in the world that can do that. And yet here comes one. His name is Daniel. Daniel meaning my God, or God is my judge. And he comes and he gives not only the interpretation, but he also gives the dream. And the dream was telling Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom is temporary. You're just a head of gold. It's glorious. It's just the head. There's going to be another king that's going to come and is going to remove you. He did recognize that Daniel's God was a God who was a revealer. A God of knowledge. A God who could reveal mysteries. But in chapter 3, as we saw last week... He disregarded God's perspective of his kingdom. And so instead of making a statue that was just had a gold head, he made a statue that was totally gold, a representation of himself, as if to say in defiance of the one God, I am king, I am stable, I am secure. And he passed a decree that all people, all nations and languages should bow down to his statue. Of course, the faithful remnant refused. They said to him, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. They, in faith, trusted in a God who was greater than King Nebuchadnezzar, and whether by a fiery death or by a miraculous rescue, one way or another, King Nebuchadnezzar did not rule their life. Their Yahweh God did. And so they placed their security in him. And here's Nebuchadnezzar. What does he see? He sees a fourth man in the furnace. One like the son of God. And so he makes another decree. Ah, this God is a God, a revealer of mysteries. He is a God who rescues. He is a great God. In fact, he even calls him the Most High God, a God of gods. And he makes a decree saying any people, any nation, any languages who says something against their God will be ripped apart (laughs) as if their God needed King Nebuchadnezzar's protection. Now we get to chapter 4. And we come here and we read right away in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, speaking in first person, says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. We'll stop there for a minute. What happened? What happened? This sounds like a different Nebuchadnezzar than we see in the first three chapters. We have this doxology that he puts out there, and he's addressing those same groups of people, all nations, all people, all languages under his rule. Listen up. I have something important to tell you. But before we get to the rest of the chapter, let's pause and let's ask the God Almighty to help us to not only hear the words of this text, but that it would sink into our soul and change us as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would strengthen us, you cause our hearts to be sensitive to your teaching, as we see what you did in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar to change his thinking, to change his heart, that he might declare and proclaim to all nations that you are the most high God that that would be true in our lives as well, not just in our words, not just as we sing here on Sunday mornings, but in every moment, every day, that that would be true in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What happened? 20 or 30 years have gone by since into chapter three. His military campaigns have been completed, and since he has conquered the world. He has subdued all peoples, all languages, all nations, so he thought. And here we have a letter from this Gentile pagan king, a worshiper of many gods, did not threaten him to have, to declare praise to a most high God because he had all sorts of gods. It was not a problem for him just to add another God to the list. You know, these people are the ones that received, the same ones that received a decree to bow down to his golden image. Some of those that received this letter were also the, Jewish, the Jews in exile. Ones that need to be reminded, ones who had forgotten that God rules over the kingdom of men. You know, God had promised clear back in Genesis 49 that the scepter would never depart from the tribe of Judah. And it seems that Israel had forgotten about that. The conflict between God's rule and Nebuchadnezzar's rule comes to a climax here in chapter 4. And why? what we read in verses 1 through 3, we see that God wins. He wins this conflict. And we see in this, we're going to see in this chapter repeated five times, three very explicitly, this big idea. God rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wishes. So how did King Nebuchadnezzar change? How did God humble him? Well, it began with another dream. And this is a very straightforward text. There is a lot of repetition, but in historical narrative, that's important to drive us to the message. So I'm going to take the time, and we're going to read this dream. The details of this dream are included a couple of different times in here. But listen to what is repeated as we read it. Let's begin in verse 4. And Nebuchadnezzar is recounting this story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw... And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed... And behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off, lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me, Tell me the interpretation, because of all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. The dream. What was happening when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream? Did you notice the words that were used to describe it? He was at ease. He was in his bed. He was in his palace. He was prospering. You know, he's on cruise control. Man, things are going well for me. I've got everything the way I want it. But suddenly, when he's at ease, when he's laying in bed, when he's prospering in his palace, something happens. These dreams begin to plague him. One dream, but it's recurring. These visions are ongoing. And it's an alarming thing. It gets his attention and it makes him afraid. It's a nightmare that won't go away. And as is his custom, what's his response? He doesn't know anything else. I make decrees, so I'm going to make a decree. I'm going to ask all my astrologers. Notice, he, he had the enchanters, the magicians, the Chaldeans, everyone. I don't care who you are. Everyone come in. Someone interpret this dream for me. Well, this is a pretty straightforward dream. It's a pretty common image even in the culture of what a magnificent, glorious tree would be. And yet it's as if he wanted something different. Someone come, me, come and tell me good news. And finally, one by the name of Daniel comes in. But do you notice what he does here? Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me. And then he adds a little side note, a little parenthesis. Did you catch it? He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. It's interesting, in this chapter, Daniel is only used twice. Daniel, which means God is my judge, El. And instead, Belteshazzar, the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel, means may the lady or may the wife of Bel, one of his gods, protect the king. Belteshazzar, Bell, protect the king. Come, give me a favorable interpretation here. Even in the recounting of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is picturing or painting a picture of where his perspective lies. May Bell protect my king. May Bell protect my kingdom. When we really should have been saying, God is my judge. So here he is. Daniel comes in, Belteshazzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is glad that Belteshazzar is here. He looks at him as being his chief magician. He recognizes that there's something different about this wise man. While he knows that his God has revealed mysteries through him, but even the way he terms it, even when he talks about Daniel, he says the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He couches it in the terms of his religion, multiple gods, rather than the one true God. He recognizes that there's something different, but he's, he's a collector of gods. I'm going to add Daniel's God to the mix. He's going to be another God on my shelf because I recognize there's something different about him. So Belteshazzar, come on in. Tell me what's going on here. And then, it's interesting, he asked for the magicians to recount the details of the dream. But when Belteshazzar gets there, did you notice what he does? He doesn't wait for Belteshazzar to give the details of the dream. He gives it to him himself. So let's look at this picture, right? The glorious tree, it's in the midst of the earth. Everything revolves in the universe around this tree. Its height was great. It grew and became strong. Its top reached the heaven. It's visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, providing protection, peace, home, security, and even food for all those who dwell in its shadow. The picture of the tree 
full of the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth in its shade. It's a common picture throughout the, even the Bible. If you look at Ezekiel 31 or Matthew 13, this is a picture that God uses to describe the great kingdoms of the world, but there's another kingdom that God uses as a picture of a tree, and that's his own. And so in this, this chapter again, you're seeing a kingdom, a great and glorious kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar in confrontation with the glorious kingdom of God Almighty. This glorious tree looks to be a picture of a universal power, one that everyone benefits in the universe. The higher the tree, the loftier the rain. Yet in this dream, this glorious tree is reduced to a stump. It's cut down by a simple decree. Being reduced to a stump is a picture of God's judgment, bringing one low, a humiliation, a resistance against that glorious rain. But notice the details in here. It wasn't just the stump was there, that the tree was cut down. In verse 14, what did it say? Not only to cut it down, but cut off the branches from the trunk. Take the branches, strip the leaves off the branches, and then take all the fruit and the leaves and scatter it. Dismantle this kingdom. Bring it to nothing. When I was a kid growing up, we heated with wood, and so we always cut down trees. And when I go to my grandpa's woods, we would cut down the trees, we would top it, we would get the, good, the wood that was good for firewood. And what we do with the tops? We would pile it all up in the woods. It was a home for the rabbits and the other wildlife. And we'd leave that there. The picture here in this story is that I'm not even making a place for the wild beast to live after it's been cut down. This thing is dismantled. It is worthless. It is a final judgment, complete. It's just good for decay. But then there is a curious little phrase here. In verse 15, leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Hold it together. Keep the roots in the earth. Why? Because there's a little hope that there might be new life sprouting out of that stump. Shortly after we moved into our new house, we had a tree that was about 10 feet away from our basement. One that had roots everywhere. And I said, that's a little too close to the basement. So what I do? I chopped it down. I cut it even with the ground. Well, as of yet, I have not dug that stump out. So you know what happens every two or three weeks? A little maple sprout comes out of that stump. It insists that it's going to have life. What must I do to get rid of it? I've got to tear out the roots of that stump so that it can no longer sprout life again. Here in this chapter, we see God says, cut this tree down, but leave the stump. Leave the roots in the earth. There is a chance, there is a hope that there might be new life again. Where once this king was a source of life, shelter and rest, he's now in search of life, shelter and rest. There's no protection from his head, even from the dew of heaven. He has nothing more to offer anyone else. He went from being the sustainer to one who was dependent upon others to sustain him. He was as a beast of the field who would feed off of the grass. How did this decree come? It came from a watcher, a holy one that came down from heaven, an angelic being, an angelic soldier who came and sent this message. It was interesting. It wasn't even God himself stooping down to give this message. God just sent one of his created beings down, a glorious being, but not even God himself. And in this moment, this angel has more authority than this king. The beasts would flee, the birds would take flight, and this tree is reduced to a stump. But what's the moral of the dream? We are told in verse 17, this is the end. This is why this dream is coming to you. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to this end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men 
and gives it to whom he will and sets it over and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's not just so that one person knows, so that all peoples, all nations, all languages would know that there is one God. The Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is the point of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, God rules over your kingdom. Don't you remember chapter 1? God gave, you into the, gave Jehoiakim into your hands. Israel, this book is written for you. I'm showing you how I am sovereign over a pagan king so that you remember the reason why you've been reduced to a stump is because you didn't recognize me as the one and only true God. I am in control. I sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy you, to scatter you. I raised you up, and I raised up Nebuchadnezzar. It's a simple little picture. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to Belteshazzar and says, tell me what it means. And so in 18 to 26, that's exactly what Daniel does. And in so doing, he's going to repeat the details of the story. So let's read verses 18 through 26 again. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. It's interesting, as Daniel begins to give Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation Daniel's perspective is one of also being alarmed. He is just as alarmed as Nebuchadnezzar was, yet for a different reason. You know, even though Nebuchadnezzar had taken Daniel from his homeland, removed him from his family, stripped him of his freedoms, sought to brainwash him, caused him to try, tried to cause him to defile himself, prevent him from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem, Daniel still grieved over the message of God that had been revealed concerning Nebuchadnezzar. Did you notice how he addressed the king? Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, my Lord. With great respect. And he says, may this be a dream, a dream for your enemies and not you. And he, he admonishes the king to turn from his wicked ways, to repent and to do what is right. Now, this king was responsible for Daniel's removal. But Daniel redresses the proud king with respect and honor, even though he knows that Nebuchadnezzar is being destined, had been appointed unto destruction at the hand of God. And so he goes ahead and gives the interpretation, king, that tree is you. You have grown to become strong. 
Your greatness does reach the heavens. Your dominion does extend to the ends of the earth. But King Nebuchadnezzar, that stump is also you. You know, it's not just an angel that's making this decree. It's a decree of the most high God, the one that rescued my friends, the one that revealed mysteries to you. He has made a decree, Nebuchadnezzar. And unlike the decrees that you have made, which God has constantly resisted, the ones that we have constantly gone against and received the favor of God, this is a decree of the Most High God, and his decrees happen. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be cut down. You're going to be driven from this great kingdom, this great palace, from your bed, and you'll be living with the beast. It's interesting. If you go back to the dream, there's a detail in the interpretation when it's first given about him, his mind being changed like that of a beast. It's interesting that Daniel kind of leaves that part out when he gives the interpretation. But nonetheless, he was going to be living as a beast with with the animals in in the wilderness. He will even eat grass like an ox. Can you imagine? This guy is going to be insane. You'll get wet with dew, for you'll have no shelter. You will no longer have a palace. You know, Nebuchadnezzar would not only be lowered to the lowest status of a man, but God was going to make him even lower, as if he was an animal. Can you imagine? He would no longer eat the rich foods from the royal table that he tried to feed to the Jewish young men. His head would be wet with dew in contrast to this golden image that he had erected of himself. He was unable to change the mind of four young Jewish Hebrews about his rule, but God was going to change Nebuchadnezzar's mind about God himself. And it was going to take place in a very specific time frame, as only God could do. Seven periods are going to pass, whether it's weeks, months, years, seven periods, a time frame that God had established Seven periods you will spend as a beast in the field eating grass until this, the repetition, until you know, Nebuchadnezzar, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Yet the stump, the roots will remain for seven periods. And so in this judgment, in this destruction, in this humiliation, there is a glimmer of hope a glimmer of change and restoration. This act of God was purposed to accomplish this change in thinking. God rules over all men, even kings. God determines and acts to place specific men in charge on the earth. And they're under God's final authority. You know, even in a democracy, in a republic, the supreme ruler of the land is not really chosen by the people, for the people. God works through the choices of man to put the ruler of his choice in place. Why? To accomplish his eternal purposes. It's about his kingdom. Jesus said, pray for his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are here in a temporary kingdom And this chapter was not just so Nebuchadnezzar would know that God rules the kingdom of men and gives authority to all whom he will, but this is addressed to all peoples, all nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was saying, all those in my kingdom, listen up. This is important. And these things are written written down for our instruction as well. One thing is certain about the times in which we live, there is no peace in our lands today. There's no human ruler that can bring in a peace that lasts forever. There is no kingdom in this earth that will last forever. Every great empire, as great as it has been, it eventually crumbles and is destroyed. So if you were to go to Rome today, what do you see of the Roman Empire but a bunch of ruins? What do we find In Iraq, where Nebuchadnezzar's palace once stood, 
a bunch of ruins. Because God is the one who rules over the kingdoms of men. Is not God even today reminding us that he is sovereign? Of all the people, we, the people of God, should know that God rules over the kingdom of men and gives authority to whom he will. But do our thoughts, our words, and our actions reflect this knowledge? While Nebuchadnezzar's removal from office was a certain thing, the removal was just as certainly temporary. Seven periods of time will pass. And then Nebuchadnezzar will know that the Most High rules and establishes kings according to his plan. Why would it be seven periods? Because that was the Most High's decree. That was God's decree. And it would happen according to God's timetable. So let's look at the fulfillment of that. The restoration in verse 28. All this, the dream and the interpretation, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It happened. Twelve months later. Don't you love that? There was a period of a year's time where Nebuchadnezzar had an opportunity to do exactly what Daniel admonished him to do. Nebuchadnezzar. Turn from your wicked ways. Show mercy to those you've oppressed. Do righteousness. Worship the one true God. But after 12 months, the dreams that he had had, the interpretation, the warning grew faint. And here he is on top of his palace, and he looks out over the kingdom, which is interesting. Most of the buildings were built before he was born. He just remodeled them, added to its grandeur, and it was great. One author puts it this way, Babylon was a rectangular-shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat. It had an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick, reinforced with defense towers at 60-foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double wall system, an outer wall 25 feet, feet thick, an inner wall 23 feet, feet thick, east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. The height of its wall is not known, but the Ishtar gate was 40 feet high. And if you go back, uh, you know, if we can do this or not, but you go back to the first screen, the main slide for our series, you see a picture of an artist's rendition of what the gates looked like, which today are in ruins. It was mighty, though. One of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens. And all we have of it are artists' thoughts about how, what this may have looked like. And so his boastful claim was, I built it by my, by my might and to magnify my glory. Earlier he was troubled in his bed, but now he is quite comfortable in his own boasting. He's ignored all the revelation of God. This time the details of the dream are not repeated, just the interpretation and the fulfillment. But the meaning, the end, the purpose is, right? Verse 32 
until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it is fulfilled immediately. Direct contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's decrees. What the Most High decrees, it does take place. And he loses his rule, he loses his sanity, in a sense, he even loses his sense of humanity. In chapter 1, he made the young captives eat the food from his table. Now, he's eating from the table that God has made for him. And it's the grass of the field. Now, men have been known to survive from pasturing. And that's how God sustains him. But God sustains him for seven periods of time. It's not glorious. It's not magnificent. It's very humiliating. But that's not the end of the story. The story continues. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to pass off the scene at the end of chapter 4, but God's story continues after this. But look at Daniel 4, 34 to 37. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven... My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Then we return to this doxology that was begun at the beginning of the chapter. Kind of serves as a bookend. How, did I, how do I get to this doxology? How did I come to know this? Right in the middle. Pay attention, guys. God is able to humble the proud. God rules over the kingdoms of men, and he will give it to whomever he does, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. It's not based upon a dynasty. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, the angels, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Magnificent end of the story. When did it happen? Do you notice? At the end of the days... What days? The days that God had decreed would pass before he be humbled. God decreed when it would happen. Does the Almighty rule the kingdoms of men and give authority to whomever he wishes? Yes. How do we know? Because both Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and Nebuchadnezzar's restoration happened exactly as God said it would. After the set time that God had set, after Nebuchadnezzar adored the Most High, at the end of those days, he was restored. What did he do at the end of those days? He lifted his eyes to heaven. His focus was no longer on the glories and the, and the, the beauty of this earth, his accomplishments, he finally realized that his sustenance, his life was dependent upon God Almighty and that he was powerless to do anything unless God so chose to give him that authority. It's a picture of humble posture. He understood, chapter one now, God gave. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Psalms 111 says. But who did Nebuchadnezzar bless? The Most High God, the Holy One that we sang about. Nebuchadnezzar recognized and confessed that the Most High God's sovereignty is everlasting, outlasting every generation. He recognized how fragile his dynasty was, that from a, a word from God and his dynasty would end. He understood that even though he took the temple furnishings and destroyed God's temple in Jerusalem and placed those furnishings in his temple of his gods, that the most high God's dominion was not limited to a building or a nation. The most high God's dominion was universal. It was supernatural. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar addressed all peoples, all nations, all languages to pay attention to these events. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. It's not that they don't have value, but rather they're not needed. Men are not needed for God to accomplish his purposes. Israel, you're not needed for me to accomplish my purposes, but yet I have chosen you to play a role in it. Daniel was simply an interpreter of God's message. Then Daniel disappears from the scene of this chapter. Did you notice that? He's gone. It's God versus Nebuchadnezzar. Does that remind you of another conflict that's existent in the world today? It was started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, the theme verse of the Bible. Satan's seed versus the seed of the woman. This is just a little a little scene of the greater picture of what God is doing in this world. God does what he's going to do. And Nebuchadnezzar finally recognizes that. And so Daniel gives him an admonition. In light of all this, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you need to do. Here's the application. Break off your sins. Tear them out of your life like a filthy garment and do righteousness. And that admonition comes to us today as well. It's called repentance. Turning away from the sin, turning toward right living, tear off the sins by right living. Daniel said, perhaps there'll be a lengthening of the king's prosperity. Perhaps your ease will be extended, he told Nebuchadnezzar. You see, the biggest threat to Nebuchadnezzar's ease and his prosperity was his own pride, not all the other nations around him. So Nebuchadnezzar, break off those sins. But this book was written to a, an exiled Jews. Ones are being punished for worshiping other gods. And so God tells the Israelites, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar is what has happened to you. You were a glorious tree. You've been cut down to a stump. If you do what Nebuchadnezzar did, you'll be restored as well. There's hope. God doesn't need you, Israel, but he has chosen you to have a role. And get this, guys. There's all sorts of things we could have bring out of this text today, but there's another very clear picture that attaches us to the gospel. Israel, God chose you to be the stump of Jesse, out of which the branch would sprout. Isaiah 11 says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Why is this passage so important? Because God promised to Adam that a seed of the woman would crush Satan's rule. Because God promised to Israel that the ruler's staff would never depart from Judah's tribe. Because God promised to Samuel that God would exalt a king after God's own heart. Because God promised to David that his offspring will be established on the throne forever. Because there was to be another king who would be humbled. And yet that king would humble himself. This king really was the greatest of all. His kingdom really did extend to the ends of the earth. 
His kingdom really did reach to the heavens, and yet he did not consider his position something to be grasped, but became obedient and took on the form of a suffering servant to be lower than the angels and to be as one of his creation. Born in a stable, no place to lay his head, the dew of the heavens would be upon his head. And he would be hung on a cross being obedient to the point of death so that he could gather all his children in to experience final and eternal rest. He emptied himself. He was cut down. He was bound with grave claws placed in a, st a stone tomb, and even had a Roman seal put on the outside, and the Pharisees and Pilate and Satan thought they had won a victory. My kingdom has come. Look at what we've accomplished. But God most high rules the kingdoms of men, and he gives it to whomever he wishes, and death could not hold him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue on earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Today we live in the midst of corrupt governments. And a direct application of what this chapter was written to the children of Israel. Look, I know it looks bad right now. I know Nebuchadnezzar rules over you, but it's temporary. I'm still God and my kingdom will come. And so we take hope not in our government, whether it be national, state, local, we can live and serve under unjust employers as Peter instructed us in his letter to the church. Why? Because this isn't it. Through our suffering, all people, all nations, all languages need to know that God rules the kingdoms of, kingdoms of men and he gives it to whomever he wills. He has given us his spirit. He has told us, I will teach you how to respond. Don't be bewildered. Don't be anxious. I still rule. And he has called us to have Daniel's attitude towards these governments. Compassion. Even alarm at what God will do in judging them. That we would pray that this be what God does to your enemies, not to you. We do not return evil for evil, but we consider that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so we pray for those who persecute us. We pray that they repent, that they see the truth, that God will humble them in this life. They might worship him. And you know, there's another part of this chapter that hits really close to home, and it's verse 37 here. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Guys, I was thinking about this passage. And I begin to think how pride shows itself in our lives today. It's like, you know, I worship God. I sing worship songs every Sunday, and I mean those. You know what's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar? We don't know if he's truly a child of God. We don't know if he just worshiped the Most High God as another God, as a God of gods, or if he truly worshiped God exclusively. We don't see fruit of repentance there. And for some reason, it's not, it doesn't matter. But it makes me ask a question of us today. Am I like Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning? Am I like the children of Israel who say, yes, I worship the one true God, except for when someone cuts me off on the interstate? We laugh. But why do we get upset when someone cuts us off on the interstate? Because they've inconvenienced my schedule. They have changed my plans. They have threatened 
my life. And in that moment, God is doing us a favor. He is squeezing our hearts and showing there's still pride. It's still your kingdom come. Do you know what's going on in that person's life? Why don't you stop and pray for them? That my kingdom come in their life. I have brought them to your attention. <laughs> Use it for my glory. How do we respond when our kids put a scratch in the brand new car? How do we respond when our spouse does something we don't like? And the anger and the frustration. And we're reminded again, the root of pride is there. And that I still want my kingdom come. And we come to this and we realize God is able to humble the proud. And James paints it in very, very serious terms. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James says, submit to God, resist Satan, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, weep over your sin. I wanted to just, in thinking about just some specific ways, I wanted to point out some books that are in Quiet, Quiet Time Cafe. Mary Jane's going to open up the cafe for a few minutes after the service. Some books that are very helpful. A small book about a big problem. 50 different passages to meditate on. Anger. Why, do we, why are we angry? Because I don't get what I want. Um... Another book on Don't Make Me Count to Three. This is on pride and parenting. When my kids don't treat me like King Daddy and Queen Mommy, I threaten. Rather than seeking that the gospel will take root in their life. How about this one? When sinners say, I do. When my wife is no longer a princess, when I'm no longer the knight in shining armor, when we each want our own kingdoms, that we look at what God says, you are the worst sinner. You know, sometimes, here, a couple other resources, when the enemy within, you want to get serious about the pride in your life? Respectable sins. We laugh about pride, we laugh about road rage, we laugh about some of these things, and yet these are serious things, right? Even, even a children's book, Buster's ears trip him up. A bunny who boasts, I'm the fastest runner, and falls. And here's a free resource online. It's called Have We No Rights, Mabel Williamson. James Montgomery Boyce wrote a, a, a forward to this. He, he makes the comment, that this book will not be popular. It'll probably never be on anyone's favorite reading list. But he said, it's just been one of the most profound books that's changed my life. Here, here's a list of the chapters. The right to what I consider a normal standard of living. The right to the ordinary safeguards of good health. The right to regulate my private affairs as I wish. The right to privacy. The right to my own time. The right to a normal romance, if any. The right to a normal home life. The right to live with people of my choice. The right to feel superior. The right to run things. And the last chapter brings us back to the gospel. He had no rights. Where are we today? How many of you raise your hand and say, I've got pride settled? <laughs> no, we don't, do we? But the truth of this book is what we need to hang on to. God rules over the kingdoms of men, including mine, and he gives it to whomever he wishes. May God work out his word in our lives today. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little story, this dream, this parable that teaches a most profound truth, the most important truth for us to hang on to and to be reminded of every day and every moment of every day. Lord, we are not to be king. You are. And so Lord, continue to show us the little ways that pride raises its ugly head. And may we see that as a gift of your grace to call us to repentance, to tear that out of our lives 
and to do righteousness. That is why you died. That is why you rose again. And that is why you've given us your spirit. That we might have your mind. So change us, Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. Amen.